0: Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gonis Malka. Welcome to Humanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us on Geneva, Switzerland, is a woman of several firsts: Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala. She is a global finance expert, economist, and international development professional with over 30 years of experience in Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America, and North America. Currently, she serves as the Director General of the World Trade Organization, WTO. She is the first woman and first African to do so. Previously, Dr. Okonjo-Wheela twice served as Nigeria's Finance Minister, first from 2003 to 2006, and then again from 2011 to 2015. She briefly acted as foreign minister in 2006, incidentally the first woman to hold both positions. She sits on numerous boards, has published several books and won multiple awards. Welcome to the show. It's such an honor to host a trailblazer like you who've paved the way for women, particularly African women, to make their respective journeys possible. You've developed a phenomenal career, which has traversed from a national level through to the global arena, and for many people, their dreams of what they'll become start in their youth. But when you were growing up in
1: Nigeria,
0: it was in the middle of a civil war. What compelled you to study finance?
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much uh, for having me. Um, Well... When I was growing up in Nigeria, I grew up first in the village with my grandmother. My parents both got scholarships to Germany as young students. And they left me with my grandmother when I was age one and went to study. So um, when they came back, they, they, they had studied economics. My father studied economics, my mother sociology. And they became academics when they came back. So what happened was I went to, of course, when they came back after about nine years, I went to live with them. Uh, so it was, it was a, a very interesting experience because in the village, I, Lived the village life, and I really think it taught me a lot. With my grandmother fetching water from the stream because we had no running water in the house, going to the farm, doing all the things, and I think that really kind of built my background and character. Fast forward when my parents come back, my situation changes completely. I go to using the live live with them in the academic environment, and that's when the issues of economics and finance. Uh, you know, from my father's side, began to take hold. Now, I must tell you that when I looked at the economics books that he was using to prepare his lectures, they looked so boring. And I said to myself, I'll never study economics. And so it, it is really surprising that I did. As you said, during part of my childhood, we had the Nigeria Biafra War, the Nigerian Civil War from the time I was age 12 to 15, um, where my parents lost everything and had to start afresh. Uh, again, that sort of helped build my backbone to, to in the sense that if you add that to my village life, I learned that you could live with very little in life. You don't need too many material things. So I always joke that I can sleep on the floor, uh, uh, cold stone floor, whatever, mud floor, as well as on a bed, and it's all the same to me because of this experience. But then all that I just factored in that later, even though I was resisting studying economics because I thought it was boring when I saw it as a child, um, I later found that this is really a field that can give me the kind of grounding in finance and economics that would help policy changes that could really lead to better things to improve people's lives so that's what led me into that field if you want to to have a big policy impact in a developing country on people's lives what's the a good field to go into i think it's finance and economics
0: absolutely and you were nigeria's finance minister for two terms so dealing with policy and uh, it also had a period of being foreign minister can you walk us through some of the significant milestones in your career?
1: Wow. First, let me say that I, I am so grateful to God uh, that I've had a very interesting and amazing career. I want people to know I didn't target being a finance minister. What I wanted to do was be a development economist, trying to make policy and uh work on programs and projects that would help poor people in developing countries. But, and I did that. So I was at the World Bank for 25 years uh, of my career, and I had the privilege of working in regions all over the world, really. And um, in fields like agriculture, in macroeconomics, in in, uh, urban development, really, across the board, learning so much. Um, And even in debt management and and, uh, fiscal issues, as I said, in macroeconomics, I think that prepared me that at a time when my president, President Obasanjo at the time, in 2003, was looking for someone to help with managing the debt of the country, he got a recommendation that told him that there's this Nigerian woman at the World Bank who seems to know something about this issue. And uh, so he asked me if I would help. And I initially went to a leave of absence of six months or so to, to go and help just even systematize the debt numbers because they were all over the place. And at that time I created the debt management office which still endures till today, computerise that debt so you could you really have a handle at the press of a button. How much do we owe? Who do we owe it to? And what's the debt service? Subsequent to that, when he was looking for a finance minister in his second term, that was when he asked for me to come and be the finance minister. So he just built on work that I had done earlier. And that was a big milestone. I I look back on that. I always joke again that nobody loves being finance minister. I did it for seven years in two terms. And it's very hard uh, because nobody likes you. Your colleagues don't like you (laughs) because they see you as the obstacle to their getting more, uh, more resources. Sometimes your boss doesn't like you because you have to say no. So that was, but it was a big milestone because we were able to do so many reforms. We were able to triple the growth of the economy from about 2.3% to 6%. We were able to fight corruption. And so I regarded, and clear the debts, $30 billion uh, uh, external debt of the, of the country, that was such a drag. Uh, and we didn't have money to pay. We also got rid of that. So that was a big milestone. Um, And and then after that, um, I um, had the opportunity to go back to the World Bank to the number two position as managing director operations. And um, from there, when I left, um, I went back to the, to my country as finance minister for the second time. And then uh, after that I left and I went to become chair of Gavi there Vaccine Alliance for five years and from there came to the WTO. So uh, uh, what I want to say is that all these jobs have enabled me really to fulfill my dream of always doing something that has an impact, a, a material impact on people's lives, trying to change them for the better.
0: These have incredible impact. And if we look at your current responsibilities at the World Trade Organization, which was only inducted in 1995, making it the biggest reformer in international trade since the Second World War, it has 164 members and its mission is to help members use trade as a means to raise living standards, create jobs and improve people's lives. Can you briefly tell us about some of the targets you want to accomplish?
1: Well, thank you. First of all, the, the World Trade Organization, the form it is in now was created in, in, yes, as you say, 1995, 1994, 1995. But remember that it was, the precursor was the general agreement on tariffs and trade. So it's been around for 75 years. But, uh, but the modern version of, uh, we have now as the World Trade Organization has this the laudable purpose, that you just spelled out, which is what is makes it compelling for someone like me. If you're here to try to enhance people's living standards, create employment and support sustainable development, then it's about people. And the question I ask myself, what are the things we need to do to deliver for people? So I can tell you that beyond aspirations, we've actually delivered a few important things. In last June, we were one of the few multilateral organizations to be able to get 164 countries around the table to make a legally binding agreement to do away with $22 billion in harmful fisheries subsidies that are leading to the depletion of fish stocks in our oceans. So imagine that there are so many Artisanal fishermen and women who depend on this for livelihood in all our countries. But you have these big fishing fleets subsidized that, you know, overfish. So having this fish illegally on the high seas, having an agreement to try to stop this is big because it means that we will stop depleting the fish stocks. Artisanal fishermen and women will have more for their livelihoods. So that's one thing that the organization uh, has accomplished. We had an agreement to make sure that the World Food Programme that feeds almost 350 million uh, food insecure people around the world, that there will be no export restrictions or other restrictions that can stop them from buying food to feed the hungry. This was not the case before. We made a legally binding decision. That has a big impact. There was also a declaration to keep export restrictions to the minimum for other types of food so that we will not have the volatility and high food prices we have now, which is very important to people around the world. So I'm just saying that look, beyond aspirations we've had impact. Now for the future, we want to make sure that trade and the WTO are part of the solution to climate change which is an existential threat, that we enable diffusion of green technologies, that the logistics of trade become greener. We, we help to solve the pandemic. We want to make sure we continue to be part of the solution so that poor people can get access to vaccines and medicines they need. So let me stop it there.
0: You're listening to Womenity Women Immunity. And today we're talking to Dr. Nkosi Ukondo Arena who is the Director General of the World Trade Organization. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. One of the things, and I'm going to quote you, you'd said the best way to help Africans today is to help them stand on their own feet. And the best way to do that is by helping create jobs. Given that Womanity, Women in Unity, our program is, is all about women, particularly women in Africa, how do the WTO's programs relate to the empowerment of women on the continent you already mentioned the fisheries example but are there a couple of others that you can share with us
1: absolutely one of the things the wto is mainly about making rules and agreements for trade but we actually have some concrete interventions on the supply side to help women entrepreneurs to help small and medium enterprises in in general but also to help women entrepreneurs. There's a part of the WTO called International Trade Center. It's owned 50% by the WTO and 50% by UNCTAD, the UN uh, Trade and Development Agency. And it actually works concretely with women. It has a program called SheTrades that helps women entrepreneurs to try to do several things, improve the quality of the products that they that they make, you know many times when women want to break into international markets, they can't because they find the quality of their products don't um, are not good enough. So this program puts capacity building and training to help them upgrade the quality, gives them access to market information. we have platforms we have built that they can go on to find how to break into new markets, um, helps them um, even with scaling up some of their enterprises with finding access to credit uh, uh, so that they can in- increase uh, their enterprises or have their businesses run more smoothly, so yes, we have concrete uh, interventions, and within the WTO itself, we have two uh, a couple of funds, the Standards and Trade Development Fund, that also helps to build capacity enterprises so we can intervene directly with women Um, and and with empowerment of women through trade is critical just end by saying that we found that women who export and almost three times more than women who sell domestically and that's why trying to get more women into regional and global value chains is so important
0: that's a fantastic statistic and really shows promise of women on the ground and being able to develop and expand their own economic output. The other area that always concerns me is the fact that we have so few women occupying leadership positions. As a female leader, can you please share your perspective on women in leadership as almost this top-down force to help drive the gender equality agenda?
1: Well, thank you. I, I think, as you say, we've, let's acknowledge there's been some progress in trying to get women into leadership positions, but it's not enough. And everybody agrees it's not enough. And you know all the statistics, you know, it, it will, according to the World Economic Forum and others to take us 132 years the way we are going uh, to, to attain gender uh, equality. Actually, it was a 100 years that we had the pandemic, and it, that threw us back to 132. So a long way to go. But I think having women leaders means that if you're a woman leader, you have, specific, you know, specific responsibility to try and use the position you're in and the, to, to bring other women in, to mentor, to open the door and I've tried to do that myself consistently through my career. And I think you can find many places women who have been mentored and, and, you know, uh, helped on uh, so that they themselves can become leaders. But more importantly is to ask the question in the organization you're leading, how are you setting the exam? How are you opening spaces for women? And I can tell you at the WTO, the first thing I did was My senior management team, that is my deputies, this is the first time the WTO has had 50%. There are four deputies. This is the first time 50% have been women. So two women, two men. I insisted on that when I came in. But the important thing is these women also competed. They are highly qualified. And it's important to insist that merit must be front and center but people people so i want people to know that say there should be women doesn't mean that the women are there without merit women are capable they compete and they get picked so and i've also tried to increase the next layer of management there were 22 percent women among the 20 directors we're now 43 percent since i came i've been here two years so i'm trying to walk the talk i'm trying to open the space for women and will continue to do that in this organization and lending my voice to opening the door anywhere else around the world. I think this is the best way we can help leadership to develop.
0: And that's exactly it, being able to create those opportunities. Yes, absolutely, people have to be qualified to take on those roles. But if the door is closed, they don't have access, and I think this is one of the, the attributes that when you're at the top, you've got the power, you've got the resources, and you can create those opportunities and spaces. In your opinion, generally, what areas do you think we need on to build the most to benefit women optimally in the future?
1: I think we need to think of girls. So we need to, to, to go a bit forward in the agenda to say what's happening to our girls and I fear that the pandemic and all these crises have set girls back in many parts of the world including on our continent. Uh, The pandemic I think had a big impact on education so we need to look there because if we're going to groom the leaders of the future we must make sure that our girls are back in school so that's a top priority to look at what's happening to schools how do we get girls back, how do we prevent early marriage so that they can at least get through secondary school? And the reason that's important is it has a huge impact. There are actually many economic studies. The longer women stay in school, the better, the more spacing they have in terms of their family planning, the the more uh, healthy their children, the more uh, educated. So that education is number one. Uh, priority. I think the next is this economic empowerment that we talk about. Helping women to get on the economic ladder, whether it's when they're in agriculture, trying to improve the quality and quantity of what they produce, or in the workplace. Uh, This is key. Getting women into better positions matters. And I think this is what helps to improve, again, their children's lives and their families and gives them more respect. You know that women who contribute to maintaining the home and keeping the home often have more voice in their families than when they don't. So, in fact, empowering women economically also changes the social dynamics of their lives within the household. And that is very helpful and within the community.
0: Often, and looking at things from an African context, gender equality touches sensitive points, be it culture, be it religion, be it tradition. And whilst we've spoken about education and and economic empowerment, we kind of have this tension and conflict between dealing with tradition and culture and overcoming those elements to achieve women's development. What are some of your views on, on how we can grapple with that cultural context?
1: Well, I think that if, uh, we need to be careful about this religion and culture. Uh, sometimes when you look at some of our cultures on the African continent, women actually had an equal place and were expected to be economically active and to, co- and to contribute. What has happened is that that traditional role had an overlay during the colonial times that now put women back. And we should be careful. I'm not trying to generalize. Each group should look at what happened. I know that within my culture, women were certainly expected to be economically active. We had this overlay of the colonial culture that I think set us back more than it moved us forward in some ways, in some ways. So culturally, when people claim this is our culture, I want to be a little careful. That being said, I admit that some of our societies. Uh, Patrilineum, you know, and, and lean more towards the side of the men. And I think the way to handle that is to show her an economically active woman and be a, make a material difference in the world. Once you're able to do that, that really changes the dynamics, like I said before. Then, you know, the, the, the woman is more valued. Some of those cultural uh, attitudes Um, tend to be, to play less. I'm not saying they go away completely because you still have women who are educated and who uh, who have income and they still face face gender-based violence and abuse in their homes. So I'm not saying it's a panacea, but it does help. So I think education helps empowering the woman economically can change the dynamics from a cultural viewpoint. Now, religion, again, let's be careful. You know, some people claim that that women are being held back by religion, but if you look closely at some of the religious texts, even in Islam, you see that there's no way it says women should be treated in this way or that way. But this is taking people's own cultural views and personal norms and overlaying it and saying it's a religious thing. So we should be a bit careful. There's nothing I see in any of the religions that says girls should not go to school women should not be educated and women should not be allowed to earn an income to support themselves what if you don't have a man in the house how are your children supposed to survive so I I think I want to downplay all these things that are laid on religion and culture and say that these are sometimes men overlaying their own uh, wishes about the way they want to see women you know I'm saying it's from religion and culture and we don't
0: buy it. Absolutely. It's about interpretation. And when someone has interpreted something through their lens that benefits them, they're reluctant to to change that view. Exactly. And and I think in everything that you've said, one of my core takeouts is this view of transformation, that change is possible, that culture is fluid and the world can change. We just have to be the people that create and, and drive that
1: change. Absolutely change is us.
0: <laughs> You're listening to Womanity Woman Immunity, and today we're talking to Dr. Nkosi Okonjo-Owina, Owila, who is the Director General of the World Trade Organization. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. As an important listening curve for our listeners um, throughout the various programs we've had, one of the questions that I ask all my guests is about some of the factors that they feel have contributed to their success. People will talk about values, uh, perseverance, a particular person in their life. Can you please share with us what have been some of the key drivers to your success?
1: Thank you. I think I've had an incredible family. Um, I have been incredibly lucky growing up to have parents that really wanted, thought we could do anything. Their children, their seven children, especially the two girls could do anything. So we felt completely empowered and, and, and that helped. Um, then going forward, uh, that support, uh, the were, People along the way, especially uh, after my university education, when I started working, um, I found there were people who believed in me, who were supporting both men and women, not just not just women, but several men. And this is where men can play a crucial role, also in mentoring women and giving them a chance and opening the door. So there were critical uh, uh, roles, but most of all was the ability to believe in yourself, to be self-confident, to be resilient, to know that there are going to be challenges along the way. And you need not let those set you back, but use them as a means to be, be built even stronger. I think the other thing I want to say is that in my career, what helped me along is always doing jobs that I liked. If I didn't like them, I had to be absolutely committed. But most of the time, I always went for jobs that I had a deep feeling uh, um, of commitment to and joy in doing. Because if you work so hard, you have to have joy in what you're doing. So that is something that I say to people. In your career, I didn't get up planning, I'm going to be this, I'm going to have this post and be that. I planned that I'm going to do a job that will deliver for people that will give me the joy of being able to help. And that was my compass. And I stopped at that throughout my career. And I think when you're doing something you really like, you excel. That's, so those are the things that, were, that have been very helpful to me.
0: A somewhat related point. How have you managed to integrate the work that you do, which is right at the top, and still manage your family life?
1: Because you you kind of got it all. Well, nobody ever has it all, <laughs> and there's no recipe, you know. That so so this book that we I, we wrote with Julia Gillard called "Women and Leadership: Real Lives, Real Lessons." I'd recommend it to women because the two of us we try to interview other women leaders and encapsulate our experiences. Okay. And Jacinda done the former prime minister of New Zealand, when she was interviewed and asked this question, she had a baby, was with prime minister. She said, there's no balance. She was asked how do you manage work-life balance? She said, there's no balance. I just make it work. And I think that that's a very good answer. But I'll tell you that one critical ingredient is having a supportive spouse or partner. You really cannot do it if you don't have a spouse who believes that what you're doing is as important as as what he is doing. So that really helped me having that equal partnership Um, and a supportive environment uh, from the family. That also really uh, helped. So with those two, (laughs) I'm with, um, you know, trying to, talk to the children and communicate. From the time they were very small, we really communicated with them in a way maybe that others don't. We brought them into decision making. Each time I needed to change my career, what I was doing, even while I was at the World Bank from one job to the other, I talked to them about it. I talked to them a lot about what I was doing and why I was doing it. And that helped the children to understand and also themselves. to to help support what I was doing. And as they grew older, they took on tasks around the house. And and so I would tell people that by the time they were 12, they were all learning to cook, the three boys and a girl. They were cleaning, helping to clean the house and manage everything. So it's making it into a family enterprise and communicating strongly. Other than that, and having a supportive spouse, there's really no, no formula. If there was, whoever has it would have made millions by now. <laughs> I've, I've
0: been looking for that formula, I have to say. And lastly, as we close out, um, one of the things that, again, to quote you, you've said, when you save the life of anyone, a farmer, a teacher, a mother, they're contributing productively into the economy. So in the spirit of this quote, as we end today's conversation, please share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa that are listening to us.
1: I want the girls and women in Africa to know just how much I admire them. Uh, In spite of all the difficulties, They keep moving, they keep working, they keep trying to produce. I want them never to give up. To know that they're among the most resilient people in the world, especially our young girls. When I listen to them and their views and aspirations, it gives me, myself, inspiration. I want them to know that there's absolutely nothing they cannot accomplish if they keep on a steady path and keep their minds to it. If they do not allow the different challenges along the way to derail them. So keep going, keep showing resilience, be who you are.
0: Thank you for that wonderfully powerful message. It's been a pleasure to host you on the show today.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Thank you so much, and good luck with the position and all of the work that you're doing, not just for the WTO, but for the continent too.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, we look forward to um, the podcast.
0: You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Awila, who is the Director General of the World Trade Organization.